I pull the rifle's trigger, an action that sends its striker pin into the round's primer, igniting the powder and creating a violent release of energy that pushes a bullet 22 inches down the barrel at 1,772 miles an hour. The herd collectively flinches as pressure releases from the gun, interrupting the Arctic silence. They all freeze and survey in different directions. The old bull is non-reactive. Did you hit him? I don't know, I say. I don't know. I forcefully pull back the bolt, ejecting the spent cartridge. I think you did. Shoot again. Shoot again, Donnie says. Once that first bullet connects, a hunter is all in. There's no waiting to see if the shot was deadly. Just send more bullets. Because each second is another sliver of time the animal might suffer. I firmly push the bolt back into position. This cycles another round into the chamber. Then I'm again searching the crosshairs for the bull's front shoulder. I fix on the target, exhale, and pull the trigger, restarting the ballistic process. The rifle's boom is immediately followed by a sharp thwop. I pull my eye from the scope. The second shot causes all but one of the herd to sprint for higher ground. They are just like humans in a similarly dangerous situation. The first boom incites quizzical, nervous looks. The second sends us running. The old bull remains. Then he falls out of sight. I pull the scope to my eye, but I can't see him. Oh God, what have I done? I think as I stand and march toward him. I first see one of his legs spastically kicking. I start running, rifle in hand. Whoa, whoa, says Donnie, trailing behind me. Slow down. He's dead. That movement is natural. The phenomenon applies to recently expired humans too, and is caused by the nervous system spilling stored energy. His antlers and clove brown and white body come into full view. He's lying on his side on the mossy green tundra like a sleeping horse. I stop about 10 feet from him. William and I will go back and get our gear, says Donnie. Blood is falling a drop per second from the caribou's neck. It leaves a thin red stream through his heavy white mane, which is quaking in the cool Arctic breeze. I think he was resting were it not for that tiniest bit of evidence. His thick body holds stories. The big scar on his back leg, hooves worn from hundreds of thousands of miles of roaming this landscape, teeth masticated into flat dishes from so many days of eating plants. His antlers spike and swoop and shovel and turn and thrust their way from his head. What kind of fights have they seen? His coat is thick and dense. What kind of storms has it weathered? I sit next to him, place my hand on his head, and look out across the tundra. The land falls away, ramps up to the fort, then lumbers a hundred some odd miles down into a wide shale canyons and piney open valleys to the Chukchi Sea. His herd is now grazing the hill from which they came. Conflicting emotions of sadness and elation rise within me. My body is heavy yet pulsing with energy. It is a feeling of intense closeness to and gratitude for this animal and the place from which he came. Almost like love. Welcome to Glorious Professionals brought to you by Gorok Media. I'm Jason here with Emily. Today, our guest on the show is Professor Michael Easter, author of The Comfort Crisis, professor of journalism at UNLV, and longstanding writer for such places as Men's Health. He's also become a good friend of ours over the years. We met a while back when he covered rucking for Men's Health, and we were fortunate to host him at our, our house for a while when he was still writing The Comfort Crisis. 
we were uh, we were just joking right before this about how our our youngest son woke him up screaming alligator in in the morning, uh, <laughs> and Michael's like, yeah, I'm cool with that. So, uh, Comfort Crisis is about our need as humans to seek out hard things to do. In doing that, he cites just about every health expert you've ever heard of to agree with this idea: do hard things, be uncomfortable. And the through line to the book, which I tore through in a weekend is a long hunt he went on in, in Alaska, which I'm sure we'll get into later in the show, this, this feeling almost like love as he describes it and what it meant to him and, and still means to him. Michael, welcome. Thanks for having me. I haven't heard my, uh, any part of my book be, be read out loud yet. It's, uh, it's interesting. It's cool to hear it. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, I tore through your book in a, a weekend with my chaotic kids all, all around. I really, really enjoyed it. And that, that passage spoke a, a lot to me because, you know, if, to, to varying degrees, many of us have been in, in that kind of a, a situation. And so, um, I do want to get to that. Um, yeah. but I, I want to start, I want to start with a little bit more about, about you and how you grew up, which you, you detail in some, some regards in, in the book, because I think it's important for people to know, to know the narrator. So tell us a little bit about, about mom and, and that journey. Yeah, sure. Um, I know you love the piece I wrote about my mom. So I grew up a single parent or she was a single parent. You know, I was an only child. Um, my mom and my father were married for maybe three or four years and they both had addiction issues. And um, it's kind of funny because my dad ended up going to rehab to get clean. And while he was in rehab, uh, my mom ended up getting sober because they had given <laughs> they had given her this book that he was going to read in rehab to be like, here, understand what he's going through. And she read it and she's like, oh, no, this is me, too. So he comes back and they're both uh, sober for a little while, but uh, it didn't take uh, for my dad. So my mom ended up getting pregnant and my dad went back out and he just kind of left us for good. So we um, we were living in this trailer on the side of a highway in Idaho uh, outside of Sun Valley. So this is like a nice ritzy town. But, you know, we were the people who would serve the, the nice ritzy people who would come in or whatever. And um, it just wasn't working out uh, financially. I mean, she had uh, a lot of hardships and she decided to move us back to Utah and when she moved us back to Utah, that's where my family's originally from. Uh, her parents wanted her to definitely play it as safe as possible because she has this baby and they wanted her to take a job at the IRS. Now, there's nothing wrong with that job, but she's wired in a very, I would say, different, adventurous way. She's very intelligent. Uh, in the 60s, she lived in Hawaii and at one point was, was actually tailed by the FBI because she was dating a guy who led this resistance movement against the against the war. Um, so she's kind of wired like that, you know, and she decided that she was going to start her own business in women's clothes. And, you know, you look at the data and, and single moms, they just, it's so hard. It's such a hard gig. I mean, I think that 50% of them, uh, live in poverty. There's, uh, it might be 50% live in what's considered extreme poverty, which is like $200 a week that they live on. And she just, worked really hard, man. And, um, by the time I was eight years old, she had moved us to a house in sort of the nicer part of town. And, um, when you're growing up with that, it seems sort of normal that you have this mom who's like, she works, but she was, uh, as there for me as possible. Um, uh, but then when you get older, you can kind of look back and be like, holy shit. Like that lady like did some, some amazing things, you know, like there were so many odds uh, stacked against her in a lot of different ways. 
but I never really saw her having to really fight that hard to do it. Just, I, I know she had to, but she just didn't show that side of it to me. You know, what stands out sort of, uh, an experience that would represent mom at that, at that stage. I, I'll, so I'll give it, I'll give a sampling. Cause I think it's kind of hard to like really encapsulate her with like one thing. So she had me when she was uh, a little bit older, she was 37. So when she turned 50 years old, I was 13. She rode her bike across Spain to celebrate her 50th birthday. So like, you know, I don't know, what do most people do for their 50th? They like, go, you, they take a cruise, right? <laughs> and they just like see if they can eat 50 pounds of like shrimp a day or something. And she's like, okay, I'm going to ride my bike across Spain. So that, that was pretty cool. Another time, and this kind of hits on two things. We didn't ever have like super nice cars or anything like that. She would spend the extra money that we had on traveling. So when I was maybe like nine years old, she took us to Thailand for three or four weeks. And this is like, you know, we're living in Utah. People are, people go to like Southern Utah for vacations and, you know, we're going to Thailand. It's like people looked at us like, you guys are insane, you know, and I don't know, maybe we were, but it, you know, it was insane in all the good ways. Um, but one time when we were traveling in, uh, in China, this dude, some guy, we're in line for something, this man butted her and she was like, tap, tap, excuse me, you just butted us. And he just kind of looked, looked back at her. And, you know, I assume saw that she was a woman and was like, whatever. She straight up shoved that man out of line, <laughs> 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 took the spot. But she's also, I mean, she's definitely uh, a fighter. That's for sure. She's one of those where if she disagrees with you, you're going to know it, which is, which is both good and bad, right? It's like that wiring. I think that wiring got her to where she is though. So I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. So what were the sort of, you know, cause I had a, a support structure around my mom. My mom was, my mom and dad got divorced when I was whatever, one or two. And, and then, you know, we moved to Gainesville. My mom played tennis down there, but it was just me and my mom. Yeah. Right. And, and that's, it's a different way to grow up. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, what do you think the, the characteristics, like what did that bring out in, in you? That's interesting. So part of her job, she would have to travel for a third of the year. So she would cover uh, the Rocky Mountain West. She would go, essentially she was a middleman between clothing, women's clothing lines and the stores. So the stores would work with her to buy the clothes and then she'd get a commission. Uh, and she covered the Rocky Mountain West, huge territory. So when she would be gone, I would have nannies, but like, I didn't ever have a nanny that lasted for more than like a year and a half or two years. You ran them off, did you? <laughs> yeah, more or less, something like that. Um, but for me, having this, you know, this solid mom who's just a total badass there for two thirds of the time who I could learn from, who would like really push me into books and into interesting ideas. And then I'd have to spend the other third of, third of the time with like some random college kid who would be there for like a year or some like, you know, older lady or one of one of the people was like a kind of part time athlete, just this random cast of characters. Like I learned how to really adapt myself to different people and learn how to deal with with different people. And I think that that has helped me in my career as a journalist, because just so used to being able like having getting thrust into people who behave a lot differently than what I would normally be used to. You know, there was like no real normal with the nannies. They were all a little bit quirky in their own way. So I had to adapt, you know, and to be able to, to uh, thrive in that. And you also learn like, 
part of journalism is getting people to say things that they otherwise maybe wouldn't say to you. So part of that, I mean, you know all about that, Emily. Yeah. Part of it was thinking, you know, when I'm in high school, it's like, how do I phrase this so I can stay out an extra hour past midnight? How do I, you know, how do I try and hide that I've been out drinking when I shouldn't have when I'm in high school, that type of thing, you know, trying to figure out those, those sort of angles. So what type of sports or physical activity, because that's a big part of this story is your kind of journey in, in taking that on and what you're willing to subject yourself to that was, that was uncomfortable. Yeah. And, and so what's your, what, what was your background in, in that regard? You know, I, I played a couple high school sports, but we were never that good. I played tennis, but it was literally one of those, like, if you show up and play, you're on the team, you know, uh, I played basketball, but again, never really great. The only thing that I was good at is that I was usually faster than people. And I was, I'm normally a very relaxed person and I don't get angry, but when I get in a sports situation, I mean, I would foul out of every single basketball game. So just by, just the, just by sheer, uh, aggression, I was, I was halfway decent. Like I would be halfway decent at sports because of, uh, my fitness level, the ability to sort of endure longer and maybe run faster, zero skills, zero skills. Yeah. <laughs> But if it's like a soccer ball down a field and it's like me versus the guy on the left, I'm probably going to beat him down there and score a goal just because whatever, just by happenstance, you know. So your mom took a bike ride across Spain. So she obviously had some sort of endurance or desire for that. Or was it, you know, did you guys do anything together on that front? We would hike. But, but I also think what was interesting about her bike ride across Spain is that She's not a super, I mean, Jason, your mom, you've told me, I mean, jogging in the airport, getting ready for a marathon. I mean, my mom, not a chance in hell. I mean, she would never do anything like that. So the, the bike ride was sort of like, she wanted to, she wanted to experience Spain, uh, I think as closely as she, she could and sort of embed herself with the culture and the people in a way that was a little bit off the beaten path. And I think for her biking was a way to do it. And then she sort of had to catch up and start doing a lot of training for that. But it's not like she was biking before that at all. So what were you most passionate about? In high school? Just as a kid growing up, before you, you grew up and, and became a, a published author and all this jazz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say I'm kind of one of those people who's always been interested in a lot of different things. I mean, as a kid, I would read encyclopedias, um, just like Oh, this thing leads to this thing. Like I'm one of those people who go on Wikipedia and go in a, down a click rabbit hole. Cause you read one Wikipedia page Same. and you see one thing and you click the highlight and then it's like another thing. And then, you know, you're reading about some obscure thing you've <laughs> never heard of. And it's like, Oh my God, this is fascinating. You know? <laughs> so I was always a little bit of a, of a nerd in that sense. Um, I was pretty social too, I would say. I mean, I just liked hanging out with friends and that kind of stuff. I don't know. That's a good question. You know, like what made me tick? I think a lot of it is just like learning obscure things and, and thinking, even though I don't think I would advertise or come off as much of a nerd. I mean, I could be wrong. You guys could be being like, no, dude, you're, you're a total dork, but you know, who knows? You got a little nerd vibe. Um, yeah. yeah, but in a good way, you know, like, like you said, you're interested in things and I, I can see that you, you kind of pick these, these things in fitness that are on the fringe, you know, and you go deep on them. Yeah, that's, that's kind of a good way to, to put it. I think, I mean, in terms of my writing career, that's definitely been a theme is that 
when I was on staff at Men's Health, I think I got a reputation for being the person who would find interesting people and interesting places doing interesting things. And I would go leave the office and embed myself with those people. Whereas, I mean, it's even worse today, but even back then, like a lot of journalism today and even then just happens from behind a screen. Like we're going to jump on a phone call or I'm just going to do some research on you. Whereas I would jump on the phone and do the research, but then also, Hey, can I come spend three days with you or four days with you or whatever it would be? Yeah. I mean, you did that with us, (laughs) you know, (laughs) (laughs) you actually just hung out in our house and followed, followed Jason on his morning routine and had lunch, you know, It, it, it was, it's cool. I think that's, it's a little bit old fashioned, but it's also kind of the way the, st- the world still works and people, that's where you get the good stuff. Yes, that's definitely where you get the good stuff. It's not in the time where you say, okay, here is when we're going to have this conversation. It's when the person's kid is screaming alligator <laughs> at six in the morning and you have to see how they react to that. And then you kind of throw out a question in those moments where there's something else they're having to deal with. And see what they say in those moments, you know, and you just get to know people better. Like I, most of my writing is generally, I mean, I've written some investigative stuff that can hit people pretty hard and show some, shed some light on things. But in general, if I'm calling you as a reporter, it's probably a good thing. You're probably doing something cool that I want to shed light on. So being able to sort of embed myself, I think, you know, people shouldn't be afraid of that. It's, um, I'm there to kind of see what you do that's interesting and that I can share with people who I think will be interested in it. So what led to kind of health journalism? Because you're passionate about it, man. I mean, it's, it's one of those things. I mean, somewhere along the way, the evolution of your life was health matters, mental health, physical health, and you want to share that and you want to get that message across to people. Yeah. I, to be honest, I sort of, I, I am passionate about it. I sort of fell into it. Um, I would say I started thinking about fitness and nutrition when I was in high school, and I would be lying if I said it was for no other reason that it got girls, right? <laughs> like <laughs> girls like the, the high school kid who lifted weights and had the six pack, and that's what I was in there for. But very quickly, I realized it was it was more for my head than anything else, like working out whether it be rucking. Uh, a long run or lifting weights in the gym or whatever it would be. I mean, that's my time to think and also decompress and just blow off energy. I'm always one of those people who kind of feel like I have a lot of pent up energy, you know, even as a kid, I would always just a lot of big movements and stuff, you know, and I ended up uh, in grad school interning at uh, Esquire magazine And then I took a part-time job with Scientific American and GQ. And these were not, I mean, I was still looking for something full-time and a job at Men's Health opened up. So I had the two dude magazines and I also had a science magazine. And that's essentially what Men's Health is. It's like health science for guys. And um, I applied and the guy who hired me, was like, well, you can write, you understand how to read a study, give her exercise. You know anything about exercise at all? It was like... Well, you know, I work out. In reality, I didn't know anything. I mean, I was like, my knowledge looking back was, I mean, nothing. It was like, you know, I'd read a couple of workouts in men's health and that's what I would do basically. Um, but he hired me because he, he basically said, look, if someone is a good reporter and writer, I, they can learn the health and fitness stuff pretty quick, but it's harder to teach someone who's more embedded in fitness to write and report. That takes, they tried it both ways and it tended to work better um, the way they brought me in 
for. And um, at first I wasn't super passionate about it. I mean, I wanted to, I think I envisioned myself more writing for a magazine like Esquire doing like long features about, you know, who knows what, but over time, I think I just saw that it had, there was a lot more there than, you know, push-ups and sit-ups and however many numbers of reps you do. Like there's real stories behind health, fitness, nutrition, and it's fundamental for people to live a better life. And I especially got interested in it when I started to think about um, the evolutionary implications of it. And it's like, well, why is 70% of the country overweight now? Why do we have such crazy high rates of anxiety and depression? Why do people get winded walking to the mailbox? What is going on here? It almost like it opened up one of those Wikipedia click windows where like once you start to see that stuff, start to read the research and talk to the, talk to people. And it's just fascinating. And there's a lot of really interesting characters in the world of fitness, uh, nutrition and, and health in general. I mean, wacky people who are doing wacky, cool things that are helping people, which I liked. And I, and I did feel like it was, it was helping people, you know, like I've written articles where I'll have people email me and be like, man, I felt like crap. And then I started doing this thing in your article and I've lost 50 pounds and now I can touch my toes and now I can play with my kids and now blah, blah, blah. And you're like, wow, that's pretty crazy. You don't really think that's ever going to happen when you're sitting making phone calls and writing. And then you get emails like that. And it's just like, oh my God, man, this, I mean, this stuff is powerful. If people do it. So that's the type of dopamine we love at GoRuck too. Yeah. You know, the feedback from people when you change their lives is really, it's really a powerful thing. Yeah. I mean, that's why I've, we have the relationship we do because you guys are figuring out a way into fitness that is uh, effective, but different and brings people together building that sense of community that I think can be missing in a lot of approaches to fitness today, especially how we've approached it traditionally. I mean, I mean, I think there's new ways that are thinking about community, but you guys are really at the forefront. And I think what's interesting is you're doing it outside of a gym. I don't have to go to this very specific place at this specific time and pay this specific fee in order to hang out with my friends and do something physical. I can just send them a text and say, meet me here at X o'clock and we're going to do this thing. And it's going to be, fun and cool and interesting. It's going to be good for us. And we're going to be able to talk and catch up and, you know, build relationships. So. Okay. We're sort of segueing into the, in, into the book before we dive in, what was the most uncomfortable thing that you did before your Alaska hunt? I would say it was probably a lot of the gym stuff that I would get sent to do for men's health. So I, for example, I trained at places like Jim Jones, I would spend like a week there and it's, you know, kind of considered one of the most hardcore gyms or whatever. They got famous for training the guys in the movie 300. And I mean, the workouts are just, they're terrible. They are terrible, you know? Yeah. Um, Said with a smile. Like really right? long or just intense? Like how? Uh, anything and everything. I mean, <laughs> there's a, I remember one of the, one workout I did there, um, they have a guy who works there who used to work there. They've kind of changed a little bit. This was maybe eight, nine years ago at their height. And he would watch you train over the course of the week, over the course of the weekend. And he would get a sense of how fit you were. And then he would write your name and a number on a whiteboard. And that was the number of calories you had to burn on a fan bike in one minute. And it was like, beyond what you thought you could really do. But he knew if you really just went for it, you could hit it. And if you didn't have that number, 
you had to try again right afterwards. And after doing that, I mean, that just wrecked me. I mean, I threw up. I couldn't walk for like 20 minutes, (laughs) but it was like this at the same time. I mean, it just sounds like a thrashing for the sake of thrashing, but it also really wasn't because it was like, oh man, we're trying to show you that you have this governor in your brain that's telling you, I can only do so much. Well, I'm going to put you in a position where you're going to have to do more than that. And look, you did it. And now what else could you do? So I would say a lot of stories like that, but- I was expecting you to say quitting drinking. Oh, well, yeah. I thought you were talking more of the fitness stuff, but- <laughs> this, is a, this is an open-ended thing. Don't, don't start getting into the practice of keeping secrets from us Wait. or- Yeah. So outside of the fitness context, Jason- Quitting drinking, definitely. I, and uh, I say that I say that, Michael, because you know I found your your book to be about a lot more than I know. This was your intent. It's not just a do this thing physically and all this great stuff is going to happen to you. It's it's really kind of a spiritual journey. It's a so I got goosebumps reading that passage at the at the beginning because I just I know what that feels like and. Mm-hmm. There's a depth to the journey that you that you went on, and I think you've been. I really think it's an extension of your life. It's not like you woke up one day and said, "I'm just going to start doing this stuff because I'm ready to go take on these hard things and describe them." It's it's just been a natural progression of your life. So yeah, that's to me what was the great through line. But I will, let's talk about this. Let's talk about Donnie. Let's talk about the Alaskan trip that you took as, as the through line for, for the book. And we'll make sure as you reference to link out who we are, which is Donnie's uh, YouTube video. Yeah, I mean, that thing is, is great. So what was the time like, like with, with him up there and, and how spiritual was the trip? And then, you know, we'll build off of that. Yeah. He's amazing. I'll circle back. Um, you're right. It was definitely the not drinking thing. And that's something that when I've appeared on podcasts, I kind of wait to see if people want to talk about it or not. Cause it's one of those things. Sometimes people don't want to talk about it because they don't know how to, they don't know how to handle it. But yes, I am a sober person. Um, I definitely picked up the genes that my father and mother both have. I'm the type of person, I mean, this is not, um, Oh, I'm going to try sober January. And I just, I, I just decided to keep doing sober January. I mean, I'm the type of person that my favorite drink of all time is the next one. And once I have one, it's just off to the races from there. And I got sober about seven years ago now. Um, but it was one of those things that was totally going to kill me. You know, um, I, the last time, last time I was drunk, I remember waking up in the morning and having this very clear, I mean, I tried to stop drinking a thousand times before, but having this very clear vision of like, whether you're going to die at 35, 55, 75, doesn't matter. You're going to die early. And along the way, your life is going to be much less than it ever could have been. Like this is going to affect every facet of your life. And for whatever reason in that morning, it was one of those, like just experienced one of those moments of clarity. And, um, I started to do work to get sober and it's knock on wood. It's taken ever since. Um, but I would say that that sort of, yes, that was uncomfortable because part of what leads a person like me to uh, drink in the first place is that I have trouble uh, being sober. Like I've always had this pent up energy and felt like I didn't quite belong. Give me a sip of alcohol. I'm good to go. Right. So I have like a living problem that I have to, that I can deal with, with alcohol, but eventually that stops working. And when that stops working, it's going to lead me to, you know, hospitals, 
which it did, jails, which it did, and eventually death, which thank God I got sober, which it which it would have, you know. But that also means that I have to go through the discomfort of trying to figure out well what is underlying this inner tension that I feel and what am I going to do every day to try and not necessarily overcome that, but learn to ride that like a wave instead of getting crushed by it. You know what I mean? And that's uncomfortable having to do that soul searching, man, you know, clearing that up so we can go back to Donnie now. Yeah. Well, sorry, before we do, what, what ended up filling that void? Is it the running, the, the physical activity or a combination of things? For me, it's a combination of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I have had to, I think a lot of it is helping others can fill a lot of that. And part of it too is realizing that I'm not that damn important in the grand scheme of things. You know, it's like ego can be a big thing. And I don't mean like, I think I'm better than everyone, but realizing that there is something out there that is uh, greater than myself and sort of trying to turn my life over to that and just do the next right thing in life, you know, that can, that can give you purpose and getting out of myself. Cause when you're drinking, you think that the world revolves around you drinking, uh, when you do it like I did and have those impulses of it is a very selfish act because the dumbest thing that I could ever do is pick up that first drink because I know that it leads me to do things that are going to hurt others, hurt myself, that kind of stuff. And that's a very selfish act. So having to sort of make up for that and help others has been, um, has moved the dial a lot for me, I would say. That's great. Okay. Back to Donnie. Yeah. Back to Donnie. Back to Donnie. Donnie is a, uh, righteous, righteous dude. I will say, what was your initial question about him? What led you up there? And then I, I just want to get to the, the spirituality that you kind of experienced up in, in Alaska. It's the only state I've never been to. And so I'd love to go up yeah. sometime, but that was kind of the, the through line. And you, you described this to me when you were here, which was the challenge for you in this book was there's so much to tell about that trip as the through line. And it was the through line for the entire book. And I thought it was a great one. Yeah. And so just tell people what, what it was. Yeah. So I, I first came across Donnie by watching the YouTube video that, that he made that you mentioned and the background of that, I can tell the background later if we have time of that video, but it's kind of funny. Um, so it's this beautiful movie that he made on, uh, and put up on YouTube and it's like maybe seven minutes long. And it talks about how he approaches hunting, um, which is a very different way than I think people think about hunting. Um, it's a very spiritual act for him. He goes out into these crazy remote places for months at a time and he bow hunts and he's almost, uh, I think I described him in the book as like a mix between David Attenborough, Davy Crockett and the Dalai Lama. Like he's this weird, he's got like this long gray hair. He used to be a model. He's like this, this crazy character. And I ended up doing a piece about him for men's health. And when, on this piece, we went up into the backcountry of Nevada and I spent four, maybe four nights hunting with him. And I realized that, you know, like I said, I'd, I'd been, I'd put myself in these uncomfortable positions in gyms and things like that, but you're only having one form of discomfort thrown at you inside a gym, this exercise that you have self-selected for, right? You go out into the wild and not only do you have exercise that you can't really choose what it's going to be like, because you got this heavy backpack and like you need to get from point A to point B, but it's also freezing cold. It's also weather. 
There's also, you didn't bring enough food because food is heavy. There's all these different forms of discomfort that hit you. And that was just in four days. And so he ended up, we, we hit it off. We became good friends. And he invited me up on this trip into the Arctic with him for 33 days. And I just thought, all right, I'm going to do it. You know, I thought maybe there's a bigger idea here. And it was one of those that was definitely outside my level of skill and ability for sure. I had to do enough training that I, that I felt sort of ready enough, you know, and we get up there and it was, um, it was very transformative for sure. I mean, I don't even know where to start. I mean, it's such just a different experience than we have in our daily life today because up there, uh, and as I'm sure you encountered in situations in the military, it's like everything takes effort. There is nothing you can do that does not involve being uncomfortable or having some form of effort. And I mean, everything from like, you need to drink a water. Well, you have to hike down to the river, which by the way, is where the grizzlies also drink and you have to get it. And then you have to walk back up to camp. I mean, if, even if you want to go to the bathroom, it's like, you got to hike out and you know, you're not sitting on this nice white, clean sanitary toilet. You're like in the weeds and you're every like rustling. You're like, okay, that's definitely a grizzly. We got to get out of here. Um, <laughs> We're starving the entire time because we're out there for so long that we can't bring enough food and we're carrying these heavy back backpacks that it just becomes you get so used to that suffering and like having to keep continually pushing yourself that stuff really starts moving internally for you. And even things like being out in nature for that long and having these moments of extended, I mean, complete silence, it's unbelievable. And just stuff starts moving. It's so transformative and so different than what we're used to today, which is where every single thing we do is comfortable. You know, we live in these environments of comfort. We're never uncomfortable unless we consciously make the choice to be. Um, we're never challenged. And everything is so frenetic. I mean, we have cell phones on us all the time. Don't have a cell phone up in the Arctic because it doesn't work. You know, we're always being pinged with emails and media and tech that it's just like, like, it's almost like we're bundled up and just totally scattered, you know, when you get out there and it's like so different, you start thinking a lot differently about a lot of things in life. That's for sure. So what was the most uncomfortable thing about being in Alaska then? I think it depends on how you define the discomfort. A few things come to mind. I mean, very right off the bat, we have a, a pilot flies you in on these just crappy little planes that are just the worst to fly in. So he drops us off on the tundra, me and this other guy, and um, we get another even smaller plane is going to ferry this other guy out to our final destination because our one plane that fits three dudes is too big to land. So we need the, the plane that only fits a pilot and one other guy. So he picks up this guy and flies away. And I'm just like standing out in the middle of the tundra, like hundred miles from civilization. And there's, and there's like grizzly bear poop everywhere. And it's just like, I've never been this alone in my entire life. I mean, it's complete vulnerability. Unlike anything ever. It's like there's storms rolling real quick there. I mean, so there's that sense of, okay, I'm always vulnerable out here. There's also, uh, you know, in the reading that you had at the beginning, after I killed that caribou, we have to hike it five miles back to camp. And that's like, I mean, it's, I imagine it's similar to sort of the insane rucking you had to do in the military where you've got a hundred and some odd pound pack on your back and you have to get back to camp because if you don't, 
it's going to be a dangerous situation. It's not like a workout at the gym where you can say, well, I think I'm too tired. I'm going to go home and take a hot shower, you know? So let me ask it this way. Was the greatest discomfort for you mental or physical? That's a good question. Uh, mental, I would say. I mean, physically, your body can do, your body can go through a lot of stuff. It's, it depends on where you're going to take your mind. I mean, you know, the, there's research that says we only use 50% of our muscle in a workout, like activate 50% of it. It's, are you going to be able to push yourself psychologically to the places you need to? Like things like one night we were maybe 12 miles from camp and it was freezing cold, but we, and we had to get back to camp because there were weather coming in. It's not, and there's a, a pickup pilot could not come and pick us up and bring us to safety. It's like, oh, I have to find my shit right now. Cause if I don't, I'm going to freeze to death out here. I mean, literally. So having, having, being put, put in those positions where you can't quit, I think things start to move and you start to think about things a little bit differently when you get back to your normal life. And so what the, the actual kill, you, you seem to be conflicted about this, not in a bad way, just in a real way. Yeah, it was, um, I mean, going in, I mean, I'm up there to hunt, right? But the whole time I'm up there, I'm like, I don't know if I actually want to hunt. And I had told Donnie, I'm like, look, dude, I don't know if I'm actually going to hunt. We'll see. And we'd been glassing, looking for caribou for weeks. And finally, we have some that appear on this other hill. There's like a, a valley in between us. And we're looking at them thinking if they start to move down the valley, we're going to be in a position where this might actually work out. And they do start to make that move. And we start trucking across this hill and we're going to try and go over the saddle so we can catch them coming up over the saddle and then we'll be in perfect position. Now the whole time I'm like, okay, I'm carrying the gun. Uh, I don't know if I actually want to fire it because, you know, coming from uh, the modern world, I've never killed anything, even though I engage in the life cycle by eating meat, you know, all the time, but it's just death is not something I'm familiar with because even our, the way we deal with dead people today. It's funerals are very sanitized and brief. Uh, after someone dies, a mortician makes them look as alive as they possibly can for one last viewing. You know, death is just not something we're int intimate with. So we get to a certain point where we hit the ground and we're crawling in across the tundra. I've got this damn gun in my hand, you know, and of course we uh, get in a position where we're thinking they're going to come over and, you know, I see these First, you see these antlers rise at the saddle and they start making their way down. And I'm hesitant the whole time, but we see this one caribou that was clearly older and limping. He'd been injured. And even at that point, I'm going, I don't know. And they get within about 150 yards and he keeps going in and out of the herd. So it's hard to actually see him. You know, anytime I get the crosshairs on him, it's like, bam, another one would go in front of him. And Donnie looks at me and he just kind of goes, look, man, if you don't want to pull the trigger, you don't have to. But if, if you're going to pull the trigger, you got to do it soon. Just because it was in a position where it was a shot that, you know, we could make. And this herd cleared and he's just standing there and I pulled the trigger and pulled it again. And at that moment, like you said, in the, when you read the part of the piece, it was like, what have I done? Like, it was just this sinking feeling of like, there's no coming back from this. There's no coming back from this. 
and we get to the animal and he's just lying perfectly on the tundra. There's the only, the only sign, you know, he'd just gone through a violent death was just, there's this little slightest trickle of blood at his neck. And Donnie was the perfect person to go hunting with for my first time because he, he just went, Hey man, I'm going to go back and get your stuff. And he like kind of gave me a minute there. It was really obvious when I read that, that he knew exactly what he was doing and that you needed that moment. Yes. And I definitely did need that moment. And I was, and I'm not going to lie. I was a wreck. I was like, man, this is, it was very, very heavy. And just going through those emotions of like, man, I've ended the life of something that, you know, is, and I can see the the herd on the hill. And I'm thinking, man, he still would have been hanging out with that herd were it not for this thing that I just did. And then my views sort of started to shift once we started to break the animal down uh, into meat that we would use and eventually eat. Because I started to see once you open the animal up and you're cutting off its hindquarters and its front quarters and the cuts along the spine, you start to realize that I'm going to eat this meat and it's going to help me live on. Not only that, but I eat meat like every single day at home and I don't ever feel bent out of shape or sad or feel any sort of bad emotions when I eat that meat. And why is that? It's the same damn thing. It is 100% the same damn thing. Saran wrap will do that for you. Yeah, maybe maybe even worse because you, you know, it's so detached. And like, at least this way you can see what it, what it meant. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And Saran wrap will do that too. That's, <laughs> that's exactly right. I mean, that's why the cuts are a certain way, why they're presented a certain way, why we use words to describe them that make them help us forget that they came from a a living animal. And you would think that, you know, after picking up hunting that I would eat more meat, but I've actually started to eat less meat because of this experience. It makes me feel a lot more, I just put a lot more thought into how much meat I eat. And I'm like, do I have to eat meat right now? Or do I not need to? I mean, I still eat it. I don't think there's anything uh, wrong with, with uh, eating meat. I'm just a little more cognizant of that. And I think, you know, more importantly, the act sort of makes you realize, for me at least, that this is part of the life cycle, that something has to die so something else can live on. And that's something we don't often think about today because we've set up this sort of system so we don't have to think about those uncomfortable thoughts. So that that moment, just the way that you told that that story and that tale and your, your stock and, and all of that, it, it brought so much more of the rest of the book to life. It, it's almost like you've been researching your whole life for, to write this book. I mean, it's, it's like you knew a lot of people and you couldn't have done all of that in however long it took you if you didn't already know a lot of people along the way. It's just not possible. And, and, it, and it showed in there and there's a lot to think about. So as we kind of transition to some of the to, to some of those, because we're not going to read every study. We're not going to cite every study in this podcast. It, it's like what I'm kind of want to get out is what's the prescription, you know, not like you go to the pharmacy, but you know, the, the section titles in the book are rule one, make it really hard. Rule two, don't die. Then there's rediscover boredom, ideally outside for minutes, hours, and days. Feel hunger. Think about your death every day and carry the load. And when you, when you look at those just in sequence, so you take this, you take all of this research and you take these, these experiences that you've had throughout your, your lifetime and, and you very much are seeking knowledge throughout this and you're, you're subjecting yourself to it and you're, 
you're describing your own kind of vulnerabilities, but also what you found, you know, to what we talked about earlier, you get, you uncover some unpleasantries, if you will, or things some industries might rather have you not uncover. And so where do we dig in and sort of say, this is what I, this is what I've learned in, in all of this. So when you think about your average day of someone listening to this show, I mean, you probably woke up in this soft bed in this temperature controlled home. And when you needed food, what did you do? You just walked to the you know, refrigerator and then you popped it in the microwave and pressed some buttons. And where did the food even come from? It just magically appeared at the grocery store, right? Getting to work, you probably drove. When you were at work, you're behind a screen, you're hitting these keys all day. Then you drove back home and you did the same thing for food. And then you watch Netflix and you go to bed and sort of rinse and repeat. That's like the typical American day, right? We've removed ourselves entirely from these lives that we used to live for, I mean, all of our evolution over 2.5 million years. I mean, everything we did as we were evolving was uncomfortable. It was done outside. We didn't have this constant influx of media. Everything was uncomfortable and challenging. So we developed these drives to always be comfortable because that used to keep us alive. So this is why that's why hunger is uncomfortable because it, you know, in our past environments, there wasn't enough food. So it tells you, you got to go get some food, dude. You know, this is why we don't like to be bored because in our past environments, it would tell us you need to do something because you're not being productive enough to survive. This is why we don't like uh, harsh weather because it's like, oh, cold, that uses up my energy and it puts a threat on my system. But when we totally tipped our environment to comfort, now this drive that we have to be comfortable all the time is working against us. It's like our body tells us you should eat more richer food because in our past environments that saved us. But now it's like we have these pantries filled with like Reese's pieces, you know, we're told to eat those. And we have this drive to be lazy because back in the day, it's like you only moved when you absolutely had to. It was still a lot of movement too, by the way. But now it's like we've engineered our environment so we don't have to move at all. But we still have this brain in our head screaming at us to be lazy. So it's really thinking about like it, it needs to be a sort of how can you I'm not suggesting that anyone go back to living like we did when we evolved. Right. But it's like, how can I take some of the things that we used to do every single day in the past and insert them in back in my life? So to go sort of step by step through some of those sections that you talked about, I mean, the first one that's um, it's a quote from this source I have. Humans used to have to do big, epic, challenging things all the time. This would be something like, you know, moving your family across the pass when you were moving to your summering or wintering grounds. This could be on a hunt for your tribe. And these things were often outdoors. We have often had different types of rites of passage that we would go through that transitioned us from like being young and inept to officially being a capable adult. We've totally done away with those sorts of things now, right? Like what's what's a rite of passage now? It's like getting a driver's license. What do you have to do to do that? You have to take this easy test, right? Everyone gets a driver's license. It's not a real, it's not a real challenge. And when you look at the data, the fact that people, especially young people today, just have no challenge in their life is why you have these astronomical rates of anxiety, of depression. Because when someone has never been challenged, even the slightest thing, for example, a microaggression, can set you off because you have zero stress tolerance. So thinking about, okay, how do I add challenges that are real, that put me in real positions of failures where I could actually fail 
how can I put those back into my life? So this is, I mean, I think this is why what you guys are doing with things like the selection are pretty cool because that's a high rate of failure. And life today is set up so people don't fail. So if you fail that and you realize, oh, guess what? I lived, but I got this far. It's like when you get back into your office and you have to present in front of your boss, well, all of a sudden that's not as stressful as it used to be because I did this thing that was actually challenging for me physically and psychologically. Yeah. What, what do they say in Fight Club? Like after Fight Club, the world just seems quieter. Everything's muted. You know, it's, it's, it's a little bit like that. You've, you've exerted yourself. You've learned that you've gotten a little bit smarter about yourself. And then you just, those other microaggressions or stresses, they just get a little bit duller. So, okay, make it really hard and don't die. Because the risk is I, you want what we want. You want consciousness change. You want people to wake up. Take, take the other pill, mm-hmm. metaphorically, not literally, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so you kind of say, what should someone do, right? Most people are not going to go on a 33-day hunt in Alaska. Right, so nor should they. Right. What is someone supposed to do? So there's a guy that I met whose name is uh, Marcus Elliott. Long story short is he's one of the smartest sports scientists in the world. He uses all this big, deep data with NBA players, like 70-something percent of NBA players have gone through his system. He's contracted by the league, all this stuff. Okay, so he's this crazy science nerd, Harvard-trained doctor, but he has this method that he uses, and he calls it Masogi, and it's based off this ancient Japanese practice where once a year, I'm going to do something that is exceedingly hard for me and only me. So I have a 50% chance of passing this thing. And I'm going to go out and I'm going to try it in one day. And it's going to teach me a lot along the way, because the thing is, and and he'll tell you this, it's like he does all the type of scientific measuring and data and AI in the world. But there's so much about being a capable human that just can't be measured by science. Like it just can't, you know? So by putting yourself in the position, like, for example, something that he's done, he does this once a year. He didn't know how to stand up paddleboard. He tried it a couple of times. And then he was like, okay, I'm going to stand up paddleboard across the Santa Barbara channel. It's like, you know, 25 miles. It's, it's crazy. And the dude had never done it before, but by putting himself in this position where it's like, I have to just keep going and one more stroke and one more stroke. And I don't, there's all these times where I'm like, he's thinking I'm, we're not going to make it. We're not going to make it. We're not going to make it. But then they make it and you learn a lot about yourself. And it's something you can do in a single day. So another example would be he did a rim to rim to rim at the Grand Canyon, which is something that could be done in a single day. Now, these are challenges for him. For another person, it could be just a rim to rim. Or it could be if you're 60 years old and you're deciding, I'm just start, I just want to get out and do something. It could be, I've never run three miles before or rucked three miles before. Well, screw it. Today, I'm going to do seven. I'm going to do seven. And it's going to be terrible. And there's going to be times where I probably want to have a nervous breakdown. And if I decide I want to quit, guess what? The world is exceedingly safe nowadays. I have a Verizon plan with unlimited talking minutes, and I can call my husband and tell him to come pick my ass up, right? But it's getting in these positions where it's like, what is truly challenging? And we always undercut ourselves. We're always going to try and think of something that's like, we're going to be able to do. And you you can't do that. You really have to think what is going to be hard for you and like finding that thing. At the expense of your body. Once a year. I mean, I think so. I don't think it's bad to walk away with a few scars. I'm not suggesting anyone do anything that's insanely dangerous, but I'm also 
I mean, bodies are resilient and we've over medicalized everything in the world. It's like nowadays it's like I twisted an ankle. It's like, okay, like people freak out about any sort of pain or feeling of, of just anything that hurts at all. They're like, oh my God, I need to go to a doctor. It's like, I mean, I'm sort of saying, yes, I'm, I'm in the same boat. I've been yeah. cooped up and it's been awesome, right? Florida's been, Florida's been great. The kids have been chaos. We're doing great. Right. She's sitting right here. Well, it's, it's been, it's been awesome, but I, I have not done that thing. You know, there was a 50 mm-hmm. miler in Normandy that we did, you know, a couple of years ago, there's been just hike in Columbia. the hike in Columbia to, to go find the lost well, city was awesome. I went, I just got back from surfing in Costa Rica for a week, which I don't surf. And I just surfed like every day for seven days. And it was, it was a little out of my comfort zone, but it was, it yeah. was great, you know? And I, came back and felt like a new person, you know, it's just yeah. like you said, it's, it's, it's doing these things that are challenging and a little scary. Yeah. And then realizing that you can do, you can do more than you thought you could. So, so like, what's the unlock though? You know, I mean, cause it's not something else is happening, you know, and what we, what we describe is this kind of need for community need to be part of something bigger than yourself. But we also say things like, to be a great teammate, you first have to be a great individual. And so mm-hmm. when you look at this word selfish, right, it, it comes across as, well, I don't want to be selfish yet. You have to do, you have to take care of yourself. It is exactly like the oxygen mask in, in the plane. And so I think what your, your, your journey that you're describing here, it involves very much that, but ultimately people have to, they have to choose, they have to choose to live this way. And to, to push themselves a little bit further and to find something. And a lot of times you need someone to, to push you or to say, Hey, I'm going on this thing. Let's, Hey, want to go find the lost city with me, sweetie? Oh yeah, you do. Awesome. Let's go do it. You know? And, and it's really rewarding. It, it's just like when everything becomes about the glorification of the individual or everything becomes about comfort or, you know, Johnny's always got to get a trophy. It, it's like, there's so many dots to connect that have gotten us to this place. And we're back to sort of, how do we go way back? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, I think you bring up a couple interesting points about selfish. It's like with, and I think the question is, well, why are you, why would you do something like this? If you were to, you know, if you decide to go do something crazy and wild, what's your intention? Are you going out there because you want some Instagram photos so you can get a bunch of likes? Well, that seems selfish and in a bad sense, but is it like, I'm going out there because and doing this thing, because I think it's going to help me move the dial on my mental, physical, and spiritual health. And when I go back into my everyday life, I know because of that, I'm going to be a better father, husband, worker, et cetera, et cetera. Like intention is a lot of it. Right. So going back to what this, this Marcus Elliott dude talks about, like he says, yeah, one of the, one of the guidelines on this is like, you don't share it on social. Because this is for you. This isn't for you to brag about. This is like an internal thing. He also talks about, you know, don't necessarily try and measure yourself against other people. You know, so if you're like, okay, well, I'm going to run a marathon, but, you know, that dude ran it in three hours. So screw that dude. I'm going to run it in two hours and 59 minutes. Like, well, why? You know, like you're trying to move the dial on your own self. And when you look at the research of someone like Joseph Campbell, like he talks about the hero's journey, these stories exist in all cultures. 
you know, this hero goes out in the world. He leaves the comfort of his everyday life. He gets put in this, you know, this middle ground where there's a lot of physical, mental uh, struggle. And he, you know, he struggles to make it out the other side, but he does make it out the other side and he's transformed for that. And there's this line in his book, a hero with a thousand faces that, you know, by slaying the dragon, we're actually slaying ourselves, our past self, our sense of self. So it's like a dissolution of the ego. You know, there's this, the, my favorite definition of ego is conscious separation from. So by doing this, I'm trying to get closer to everyone else in my life and get closer to my own sense of, you know, spirituality and who I am and in turn getting closer to everyone else. So this tribal, this tribal sense, right? And when you, you kind of go back to, look, the, the military does this. The military takes you as an individual. It breaks you down and it says, you're, you're part of a team. You will submit. And then it builds you back up as a capable and comp- more capable and more competent individual who is a part of a team. And you get this kind of sense of belonging. You have this, this community that you're a part of and the team needs you and you need the team. And you know this, you know this in your very core. Now, we're, we're kind of saying that that's the goal. You, you can remove the military, you can remove war. It, it's like you have to take things to an extreme to kind of get anyone's attention first off. And, and second off, because it's, it's more interesting. But, but how do we do that? Is it in our culture, what's the best way? What's the best solution? Is it anything from CrossFit to Go Ruck to what's the through line of the things that work? You know, individual extreme hunting trips. I mean, I know people got to find their own way. They got to, they got to march to their own drummer and all, but what's the through line? Yeah, I think, I mean, you, you bring up good examples and when you pull back and look at those, it's like you mentioned, there's community, there's a physical aspect, but then there's also having to push back, push back your own impulses to sort of quit and give in for something higher and greater. Right. And you're, and you're often doing this kind of stuff with people like at a go ruck event, like with CrossFit, like with a backcountry hunt, usually, usually you do that with other people and you're working with them. Like I did with, with Donnie, you know, it's like, what, you know, what really speaks to you? How do you get enjoyment? I think personally, if you can be, do something outside, there's a lot of benefits to that. I mean, you look at the research on being in nature and it's, it's crazy, the benefits. I mean, Everything from like health markers improve after just like, I think, 30 minutes. Um, once you're out there for longer than three days, a lot of things start moving in your in your mind. Like people's uh, brainwaves start to look similar to like these experienced meditators that they that they study. It's like in the book, I explained it as three or more days in the backcountry is like one of those extended meditation retreats, except you can talk and you can eat and there's no gurus and they're not going to charge you a bunch of money for their wisdom, you know? So, so warning to people out there, I'll tell you, I, I read that part. I'm sure her, her brain, M's brain is going like this right now. Right. I, I read that part and I, I'm like, Hey M, all right, here's the deal. Here's the deal, sweetie. Right. 72 hours is the number we, we got to do something. Cause I'm, I'm at that stage and I know there's so many people out there right now and I feel like the timing of this is great. Nobody, nobody wished, wanted, hoped, or begged for, for something like COVID-19 to come along, but we have people's attention. And to have their attention to say, you need to do something big, and it's not go sit on a cruise and wait for, for mealtime or, or the buffet to get refreshed, right? 
you know, living in that movie Wally, that that is not the the existence that we want, right? Yeah. Find something that's going to awaken your spirit and go get after it. And oh, by the way, sweetie, it's going to be seventy two hours. <laughs> well, yeah, thanks, Michael. No, <laughs> I, I actually love that stuff, and um, you know, it's it's so funny because like what you were saying, it's it's you're going away, but you're coming back a better part of of society, of community, you know, and and then you know this idea that it might be uncomfortable to in the in the moment but it's actually i think it makes our lives better you know it, it you know you do something uh, that you know pushing the limits and and most people will tell you like you know these most memorable times in their lives are when they did this big kind of physical thing together with someone. I mean, it's usually like some sort of sporting event for most people. And then, you know, if people have gone on, you know, I think hikes or, you know, trip where they had to really do something really, I mean, it's like this idea that when everything went smoothly, wasn't, it wasn't exciting. It wasn't fun. It didn't stretch them. You know, the growth happens in those times in between. And it's, it doesn't have to be this, like you said, it's the silence, it's the boredom, it's those quiet times where, where a lot of those things happen. And I, but I think the key, I think the through line is honestly is outdoors. I think, I think you're right. I, I think that's the, the, the underlying thing. And then it's like, well, what are you doing outdoors? You know, and who are you doing it with? How are you doing it? Those are the, those are the choose your own adventure types of things. But the more we can get people outdoors it's going to open up their, their eyes. And I, and I think for part of the people in the, during this pandemic that for whatever reason, you know, because of health issues or having to be online with their job and school and stuff, we've seen, you know, a large part of the population have to be sequestered, have to be inside a lot. And that has been, I think, a really overall bad thing. And then you've seen this other segment of the population that has been, their eyes have been opened to what the outdoor brings them. And all of a sudden they've said, I didn't even know what was going on outside of the city. And, you know, I met this guy on the plane coming back from my surf trip and he was like, I'd been like in my little, you know, apartment, you know, I think, you know, in Manhattan, you know, worked for a tech company. And then, then I just said enough, I'm going to get out. And he explored all around the state and now he, I met him and I found him in Costa Rica and now he's in Belize. I mean, he's, you know what I mean? It's like this kind of stuff. He's like, I woke up. Yeah. You don't have to go to these fancy places to, to, to wake up. You can do this like in your hometown and, and there's beauty to be found out there. And it's honestly, it's, it's get outside and the rest kind of will, will, will figure itself out. I mean, like we have evolved because we're so smart, right? And we work together, this tribal sense. We're really smart. Humans, but, right? Yeah, humans. <laughs> but yet we're, we're losing. We're losing to impulses and urges in our DNA. So what's the point of being so smart if we know for a fact, go outside, you need to move. You should maybe eat a couple more salads than, than just, you know, have another, whatever came off the frozen Cisco truck at whatever thing, and then got dipped into some batter and what I get it, it. It's good. Right. And when you're at the fair, make sure to get the cotton candy and the, the, all that stuff. Right. That's fine. But we're, we're just, we're losing. We're, we're literally losing. We're, you know, we're less happy. We're less fit, more depressed, you know, and less connected to people. You, all these things you talk about are kind of going back to basics. Yeah. Right. And, in, in, but in the modern age, you know, we're, we're not going to, 
not expect everyone to shoo everything and go live, you know, off the grid. And I mean, that, that's, that's, that's an extreme and that's not for everybody, but we do something that we started in the pandemic where our kids were just like driving us crazy. It's that witching hour it, you know, it's right before bed. They can't send them to bed yet, but they just had dinner. And we started this thing where it's a, it's a night walk <laughs> and we just, we go outside and we go up this hill and we go down it. I mean, they're going to remember that for the rest of the rest of their lives. I mean, it, last, it doesn't always go perfectly. Last night there was the, Hey kids, get around here. Family meeting. All right, everybody, <laughs> get your minds, get your minds right. 10 pushups each. Well, they you know, were being that. very, very naughty <laughs> yeah. and, and a little unsafe, quite frankly. So I don't, I'm not trying to sound like a tyrant, but I was needed, we needed to, to corral, you know, but I think we need that. But this is like, you know, the tribal leader needed to reconnect with the people. And, you know, so for the most part, a bad night on the night walk is still better than a good night stuck at home. It's just a fact. Yeah. And your kids are not going to remember, you know, the opposite. What is it? You put on another Netflix show for them. They're not going to remember watching some random show on Netflix, but they will remember those night walks. Right. So you're creating like these impressions in your sort of scrapbook of life. And I think that when we get out of, you know, we are as humans, we are programmed to fall into an easy routine. One, because it saves energy Two, because even just by having this predictability in our daily life of like, wake up, breakfast, work, dinner, TV, go to bed, repeat for a lifetime. It's safe. It, that used to help us in our past environments, having this predictable routine because it, we would know where our food was coming from. It just helped us feel safer. Well, we still have that machinery, but now it's like applied to the modern world of, like I said, like living in this just cycle of just the same shit day in and day out. And when we live like that, you look at the research or brain can essentially go on autopilot. We're not actually present and aware of our life and what's going on. We're just sort of stuck in our head, like going through our days, right? In this random routine. And we're just thinking about like, oh, what am I going to have for dinner? Oh, I wonder if the Nets won the basketball game tonight. Oh man, that kid kind of looks like that one kid on that other movie. You know, you're just thinking of random shit all day. It's like you're stuck inside your head. When you go out and you do new things, all of a sudden you can't anticipate the future like you could in your normal routine. So all of a sudden your brain has to like, okay, wake up. There's something new here and I have to be aware and alert of what's going on. It's like, you know, William James said, your life is a summation of everything you were aware of, mm. you know, and so much of today living in these sort of routines and bubbles, we do, we're just sort of lost in our noggin, sort of just going through life, sleepwalking through it, you know? So like inserting these, what can I do to shake that up and insert something that's going to force me to be aware and to feel all these things that I'm not feeling day to day. So that's why I love, I mean, the 72 thing, I'm sorry, you're locked in now. Emily, yeah. get your, get your sleeping bag ready. Oh, Jason, Jason <laughs> will invest in a, in a down bag. Like I had in Alaska, we'll find you a negative 100 degree bag somewhere. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I mean, when you go, when you're spending time in the backcountry, you're forced to face all these things you've never felt before. Like, you know, hunger because you have to backpack in your food. So you're not like packing in all this stuff. It's like, oh, so this is what real hunger feels like. You're having to carry all your stuff and it's tiring. When it rains, it's like crap. And if it's cold, you're going to be cold. You can't go turn up the thermostat. As, you know, as my cold. drill sergeant said, when it rains, you get wet. When it's cold, you cold. When it's hot, you hot, <laughs> right? It was real exactly. simple. It's primordial, you know? <laughs> exactly. But, Michael, do, do you think there... 
is a specific kind of point in time where things started to get a lot easier for us. I feel like it's a lot, it's closer than maybe we think, you know, it's like our, like my grandparents didn't have it that easy. You know, when I hear about, I mean, maybe those are just the, I had to walk up the hill in the snow kind of stories, but I, I don't know. I feel like their, their world was still a little bit more connected to, Mm -hmm. you know, kids walk to school still, you know, they, they played on the sandlot. They all watch TV, one, one, you know, couple channels on the TV kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, all the stuff that really started affecting our comfort level and how we live every day. You know, it started in the industrial revolution, but that doesn't mean that it just all took off then, right? A lot of stuff was slow to adopt. I mean, I think when you had radio was introduced in the 20s, that started to change how people would interact because now you're listening to a device. Even though you're listening to it together, it's still slightly different than having that conversation. Sure, those conversations still happened, but probably not as deeply as they did before radio. Then we get TV. I mean, when TV was introduced, people went from watching zero hours a day to I think the average became six hours a day at the end of the decade after oh. TV was admitted. So, I mean, we just went all push all the chips across the table for this television. And then, you know, everything starts advancing from there. You know, the jobs start to shift to more um, office work. We're sitting more. The modern food system really starts to rise up and be just well distributed. You know, um, you get things like ultra processed foods that are easy to eat. Everything just starts to take more effort. And I think a big um, a big thing for especially younger generations is the invention of the cell phone. I mean, smartphone in yeah. particular. Like like when we grew up, if you had a cell phone, great, but it was a crappy Nokia. That like, what are you going to do with it? Text your friends. That's all you do. You text and call, and maybe you play some Snake. You know. <laughs> And now it's like kids live on their cell phone. I mean, I have this uh, class that's 100 students. And the first day of class, I make everyone pull out their cell phone and tell me how much screen time they have. And then I say, who thinks they have the most time? And you'll have a handful, you know, raise their hands. I'm like, how much do you have? One kid will be like, seven hours, 45 minutes. And then it's like, does anyone have more than seven hours, 45 minutes? I mean, it's like an auction, right? Yeah. Someone else will raise their hand. It's like, I have 845, you know? And it's just like, (laughs) Eight hours and 45 minutes. A third of your day. (laughs) Your life is literally, this person's life is literally what they're saying on Instagram or TikTok or whatever it is. So it's like we just, everything, we started getting these technologies that make everything easier, but they just keep advancing and advancing. And there's this concept I talk about in the book and the dorky name of it, you know, the dorks at Harvard, they call it uh, prevalence-induced concept change. Now, the way I think about it is called comfort creep, which basically says that as some new thing that makes our lives easier gets introduced, we just adapt to it. And then what used what we used to think was great and made us comfortable, all of a sudden that's unacceptable. It's like, oh man, think about staying at- Your you revolution know, is your kid's baseline. Yeah, exactly. It's like if, if we were to go to a one-star motel right now, we'd be like, man, this is a shithole. <laughs> we're really, we're really it, roughing it. <laughs> yeah, we're roughing it. Now think if this was 100 years ago, it'd be like, oh my God, this place is unbelievable. This is the nicest place in the world, you know? And so yeah. the ball just keeps advancing and we're just not conscious of it. We don't notice this. We don't have the ability to pull back. And this is another, the researcher told me, another evolutionary mechanism to save energy. You don't want to remember every single instance that you've ever seen and make these comparisons. You just want to remember the last one and be like, okay, this one's better. Yeah. Favor this one because it saves brain power. 
Michael, you know, one of my favorite movies that I'll watch anytime it's on the, you know, it's on or I put it on is The Revenant. I think that's only like 200 years ago, right? I mean, in the grand scheme of things, that's not that long. And all I can think of when I'm watching it is like, how difficult would it have been to live at that time? You know, it's exactly the kind of stuff you're talking about, you know, having to carry heavy loads, having to worry about being some animal's lunch, you know, having to endure the weather, other people trying to kill you. I mean, it's in the, your lifespan was, I mean, if you died, you, I mean, people were like, yeah, man, they ate a, you. He had a long, yeah. he had a long life. He was 25, you know, I mean, it's, I mean, getting sick, you know, and it's just like, I have so much respect, you know, for that kind of lifestyle. Cause they were just so tough and, and, and life was really, really hard. And I'm, I'm thankful that I was describing to my daughter the other day about, I was like, you know, we can wake up and we don't have to worry about if something's going to eat us, you know, and we have this house, we could be here if there was a bad storm, you know, sort of thing. And, you know, I was just trying to talk to her about like, we're, we're very fortunate that we have these things, but we can't take them for granted, you know? And that's what I think it's not, it's not saying like, don't stay in your house and don't, you know, have the air condition. It's just, it's really being mindful about it to be reminded. We, we have to do these things. Like what you're saying is to remind ourselves of what that is. That's a comfort. That's not the baseline, right? That is actually comfort. I mean, the surf school I went to, they were talking about, there's all these different types of surf schools you can go to and there are different prices and some of them are really fancy and you stay in these great places and you eat all this great food. Well, I just happened to land upon this one that was like pretty Spartan living, you know, no hot water, no air condition and, you know, basic food, you know, your rice, your beans, your fruit and vegetables. And people were telling me like, yeah, I'd been to those other ones. And it's just, you feel kind of, ugh, you know, you can't eat rich food all day long, you know, after you've been surfing and, you know, you don't really want a hot shower, you know, after you've been in the sun all day, you don't really want air condition. It's like, Going back and having those experiences reminds us of like what's comfort and what is actually, you know, the the real world. Yeah, yeah. No, you nailed it. I mean, it putting yourself in these positions for an extended period of time, it gives you appreciation for what you have. So there's this restaurant that my wife and I go to all the time. This place always has a line. This place is always inefficient. They are a model of inefficiency in business. <laughs> and so you know, before I go to Alaska, it's like we get there and I'm sitting there waiting and I'm like, this waiter dragging ass, like, why doesn't he move here? You know, and I'm just frustrated and pissed off because like I have to wait because my time is so damn important, you guys. You don't even understand. Now I go to Alaska and it's like everything sucks. I'm always hungry. I'm always cold. Everything is miserable. It's like now when I'm in that restaurant after coming back, I'm like, I can look back on that and be like, this is fine. It's like, I'm warm. I'm about to eat like 2000 calories in, you know, tortillas filled with chicken and cheese. And like, this is freaking awesome. And you know what that does for me is that makes me less of an asshole in every moment for the rest of that day. So it's like just giving that little bit of perspective, if that can even make you slightly less of an asshole, can you imagine if you put slightly less of an asshole at scale across the country? <laughs> it would all be so much better for it, right? That's your next book. <laughs> yeah. All right. So to, to change topics just a little bit, because while we've got you, you've been covering rucking, frankly, longer than anybody, mm-hmm. right? In in this modern day, whatever we call this with with coverage of, of health and fitness and stuff. And you know, the 
the section where you talked the most about it was, was carry the load. So from that section of, of carry the load, anthropologists are understanding that carrying was likely fundamental to human evolution. But historians have long known that humans carry during vitally human acts, like hunting, exploring, and fighting. We know that the earliest hunters carried items like spears, clubs, and hopefully meat. Exploratory expeditions, beginning with the Phoenicians in 1550 BC, carried survival resources into the unknown. If successful, they'd haul back precious spices, metals, information, and more. Prehistoric cave art depicts warriors heading into tribal battles with crude shields and spears. Together, these items could weigh 10 to 20 pounds. Thousands of years ago, Greek hoplites, Roman legionaries, and Byzantine infantrymen all marched with around 30 pounds of gear. Fighters in all regiments around the world until the mid-1800s, in fact, carried between 20 and 35 pounds. You then go on to sort of describe how the weight has just gone up and up and up, but that it should be under 50 pounds, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, the, the practical application for you was, was well described. You're, you're quartering your, your caribou and you have to hike it. You have to ruck it down to your, your base camp. And I mean, it's, it's a simple act, right? I mean, it's basic. You put it on your, your back and you carry it. Yeah. And I'm sort of getting at like, what's the, I mean, we recommend this, you know, I guess the premise of go ruck is you take these, this basic way of living, of moving, and you adapt it to your, your modern life. And what's, what's the case you would make, or why should people do that with, with all the evidence and all of the, the statistics and our people will be fascinated by a lot of the stuff that you cite in, in the section. How, how do you summarize that? Well, I think that what we were built to do can inform a lot of what we should do today. So if you look at the human body and the way that we evolved, the, the way we're built, um, we basically evolved physically to do two things really well. One of them is run long distances slowly in the heat. So we stand on, you know, two feet. We're very slow in sprinting, but we can run really far and we can control our heat. So we would, uh, you know, run down animals um, who can't cool themselves as well. And we would spear them. Now this might take place over like 20 miles, right? But then we'd have to carry that heavy weight back. So this is again, why we can, why we have these hands that are exceedingly strong. There's no other animal that can carry stuff because they're all on four legs. Like they have to drag it in their mouth. It's exceedingly inefficient. So we, these are the acts that we're built for running long distance or walking long distance and carrying stuff. So you combine that today. And I think it can really inform how we should look at health and fitness because oftentimes, I mean, you look at what people do in the gym today and it's like, I'm just going to get as jacked as possible. You know, I just want all the muscle. Give me all that muscle. It's like humans never, humans are not strong creatures. We are weak as shit. Like you compare us to anything else. We're so weak. And as we evolved, having extra muscle it wasn't healthy. Like you, you couldn't do it because you didn't have enough food to fuel that. I mean, no one is delivering you your, you know, your pre-made chicken and rice meals uh, in your little Tupperware. And then two, you wouldn't have been able to run far or or carry stuff. So it's like I think that rucking gives people an opportunity to hit this like sweet spot where they're getting just enough strength work that's challenging their muscles in a lot of different ways. Um, but also it gives them the endurance work. I mean, you look at what kills people today, it's heart attacks, heart attacks and strokes. Those are collectively the number one killer of Americans. And when you look at fitness culture and gym culture, so much of it revolves around like 
just going to build all this muscle. I don't necessarily, I'm not saying that that's bad and that's not doing people good, but it's like, I don't know if that really is going to move the dial in terms of longevity as much as something like rucking would be like, you know, that saying smaller dogs live longer goes across all species. And I think that rucking gives people this opportunity to improve their cardiovascular endurance, which is associated with living longer and, you know, being disease resistant to all these different types of diseases, but so is having being strong enough. You know, when people look at the strength research, they sometimes think, oh, this means I should just get as jacked as possible. It's like, no, that's not what it's suggesting at all. Cause they're looking at people who are just like not sarcopenic. They're showing that people have enough muscle. So that sort of gives you this build and these skills, I think that can translate to functionality and longevity. And it's easy to do. It's so easy to do. Like I have a, a you know, I work at a, as a professor, so I have to take these long walks across campus to go teach. And I just keep a third, uh, 20 pound ruck plate in my GR1. I get to class, I pull out my laptop, plug it in. I'm good to teach. I'm not sweaty, but I've added just a little bit more resistance to my day over time, over all the amount of walks I'm going to take across that damn campus the rest of my life. That's going to move the dial a lot. It's like figuring out ways to sneak that movement into your day. Hide the miles, right, Chase? Yeah, hide the miles. So you kind of alluded to Born to Run, right? Which was sort of started the minimalist craze of Vibrams and all that, all that stuff and, and led to a ton of injuries, right? I mean, mm-hmm. then, you know, then the shoe companies get into, you know, zero drop shoes, but then everyone has a huge reaction against it. So now the, the shoes are like uh, Forever 21 platform, Shoes yeah, for, for teenage girls, you know, except they're, they're called, you know, sneakers now. Yeah. <laughs> right. And it's like, what's, the, so what's the starting point? How, how do we take, because your, your book, which I think is a great first book, right. You know, because I, I, I know you and I've been reading your stuff for forever and I, and I loved your book. I, I really loved it. Good. It, Thank I, you. I, it also kind of, I think it's your first book. And much like Bob Dylan's first album was a lot of covers. He didn't write the words, right? Mm-hmm. And in, in that regard, you, you went around and you found all these great people, right? And we, we were really fortunate that you, you asked to come stay with us and, and we got to know you even more and that you were interested in covering rucking. And I feel like your next book, which I know you're going to write, it will be even more you become the expert like unto yourself because you've just been able to synthesize all the stuff. I know you have it. Cause when we just chat on the couch, it's not, you don't always come back to quoting this person and, and that person as much. Right. Yeah. Um, my, I guess my, my question is, it's like, how, how do we synthesize? You got a lot of people out there where do, I'm kind of in okay shape. What's more important, my community, my friends, my cutting out my diet, my inability to, you know, deal with silence, my, you know, my mindfulness, my, do I need to start jogging? Do I need to start rucking? Do I need to go do yoga? There's so much stuff out there. Yeah. Is it just figure out how to go outside more? Is it like, what is the, the one takeaway that you've got? Like, how does someone start down this path, this way of life that you're getting after here? I think you try everything that you just mentioned. I mean, we know that all of those things are good for us, but that doesn't necessarily, I mean, that's at a population based, right? That doesn't necessarily mean that they're good for me. And good is like, what am I actually going to stick to and do? Mm -hmm. Now, so we're talking about 
diet or health and fitness. It's like, you know, in the nutrition world, it's like, there's all these crazy ass diets, like, oh, I'm going to go keto and blah, blah, blah. And then the other side's like, well, the research shows it doesn't actually help you lose weight. It's like, well, who cares if you want to try keto, do freaking try keto. Yeah. It's probably not going to work for you in the long term, but you might pick up a couple tips that might help that you could apply to the next diet you try. Just, you know, try things. And I think that our intuition can take us a long way. You know, we have an expert for everything now. It's like people fundamentally know how to eat healthy. You know, it's like, (laughs) eat some vegetables, eat some protein. Like if you really want to try that stupid diet, try the stupid diet. Like whatever, dude, you'll learn something from it. You know what also is that I find when I change up something, my environment, my routine, my diet, the, you know, how I'm, what workout or what I'm doing for exercise. I, f- I find that the, the, just the change is good. You know, it, it, in, in and of itself, it's kind of an awakening, right? It's something new, right? That my body is not totally used to. And, and it's like, it, it's this idea of, whoa, what are you doing now? <laughs> you know, like, you know, I have to make this adjustment, you know, and I, I think it's good to, to keep it keep it interesting for your, for your mind and for your body. Yeah. It's like, just do something, man. I mean, so often people are just complacent. It's like, you know, that freaking eating Cheetos and sitting and Snickers and sitting on the couch is not healthy. It's like, what are you going to do? Well, something that something's better than that. Right? Like try rucking. You want to try running, try running. You want to go to the gym, go to the gym. You'll find stuff along the way that you pick up. And I think too, I mean, for me, there's this, um, this personal rule when I try and figure out like what's probably going to be good for me. And I call it the oatmeal rule. You guys have probably seen the movie river runs through it where they're sitting at the table and the one son won't finish his oatmeal. And the the dad just goes, son, man has been eating God's oats for thousands of years. It's not the place of an eight year old boy to change that. <laughs> well, I love anytime that. some like new thing comes along, I apply the oatmeal rule. It's like, have we been doing this for thousands of years? If yes, it's probably good for us. If not, eh, I can probably ditch it. Or at least like, we probably don't know all that much about it. You know, oh, so, I like, love that. humans have been walking. I mean, we evolved to walk, walk. We evolved to run. Running's probably good. I mean, we've, it can have some problems because people are so big now and, you know, our movement is thrown off, but try it. If it hurts, you're not going to die. Just stop running and do something else like rock yeah like rock exactly or like you're eating eating the potato right exactly like you know i i got so much crap from people for eating potatoes in college they thought i was unhealthy or blah 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 and i would be like i like them (laughs) i i feel good when i went after i eat them and so you know, it's really validating to to have read your piece on peanut butter and jelly and, and potatoes. So I'm like, that's what I lived off of in college besides rice and beans. And, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's fine. You know who else did like uh, civilizations in South America for <laughs> yeah. thousands and thousands of years. And then some fucking scientist is going to like look at people who ate French fries and then try and like tell us, do a study that's like, potatoes are actually bad for you. And then the media picks it up and it's like, oh, potatoes are, oh, potatoes are actually bad for you. It's like, and I'm like. My last Come name's on. McCarthy. My my yeah. people made it to America because potatoes are good. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I it's love a- that rule. I think that's a great like rule. It's a great movie. Um it's a great book. Yeah, it's a it's great an book even better too. book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so Michael, part of what works with all this too for me is, you know, you, you kind of say don't 
you know, Snickers or, and all these things. Well, you packed out Snickers for your, uh, your, your hunt, right? right? Or, you know, your, your secret vice cats out of the bag is, is Diet Coke, you know? <laughs> I mean, you know, there are just these things that look, you're, you're not saying don't, you've got to be perfect all the time. And you're very much a, a questioning type of person, which serves you well. I think you're in the the perfect profession. And I always look forward to reading all your stuff and to seeing how you and your pop are running around or sometimes rocking around in, in the trails and stuff. Well, he always beats them, right? <laughs> Every time. Every time. So my, my last question is, is, is what's your, what's your advice to people out there? Not in terms of just health and, and wellness, but just people that are you know, trying to find out who they, who they want to be or how they choose their profession or how they find their path? It's a good question. Um, now you've put me in a position to try and be a guru. I wish I had, I wish I had great advice. Um, I mean, I can only speak for myself that, like I was mentioning before, like I had to try a lot of stuff till I really figured out what works for me. And I feel like life is unpeeling an onion. You know, it's sometimes like I assume everything is is great right now, but I might learn something where I'm like, oh man, I never thought about it that way. And my life improves. So sort of for me, accepting that I, you know, things are always going to change and I'm not going to believe and think the same things uh, in five years that I do right now. And that's fine. Uh, But just, just trying stuff. Like for me, I had this, you know, this job at men's health and I thought it was, was great, but I also felt like there was something missing there. So I, put myself out there and I sh- sent out some emails. I ended up getting this job as a professor at UNLV and being able to continue to write. And it's like, you just got to try stuff. You know, I think a lot of times fear can really hold us back from like, we don't want to put ourselves out. Like, well, I'm not going to do that. They're not going to accept me. They're not going to blah, 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 blah. It's like, you don't really know that. You know, you're just assuming something about yourself that is probably incorrect. So trying things. I mean, I don't know if that answers your question in the least bit, but that, that's what seemed to work for me and trying and questioning, you know, like you said, it's, there's so much stuff out there in terms of health and fitness advice. Anything that is ever absolutist is going to be wrong. And it's just, like I said, apply the oatmeal rule. That seems to have worked for me. I'm not saying that everything new is bad, right? It's like cars are new. Cars are great. But at the same time, when we're talking about health stuff, usually that oatmeal rule will take us pretty far. All right. Well, Michael, thanks so much for, for your time and for coming on the show. It's always great to catch up. Yeah, it was awesome. Thanks a lot, guys. All right. So we went and chatted with Michael for an extra half an hour when we got <laughs> off. Oops. Yeah. G- good times. <laughs> He's I, easy I mean, to talk to. Yeah. yeah. I know. It was kind of funny when you told me, hey, Michael Easter's coming. He's going to spend a few days writing a book. I was like, what? <laughs> what what is he writing what's going on you know <laughs> um but he was great he actually rolled with it really easy you can see like what he was talking about about being adaptable like, well that's- you know i had sent him a note which basically gave him two options i said hey there's this little hotel that i recommend hotel right? palms hotel palms local or you can crash with us, you know, here, here's the upside and here's the downside. <laughs> and I, you, know, you always try to hedge this stuff with like, I know you writers have all your weird quirks and all this stuff. And he's like, yeah, we do. I think it'd be more interesting at, at your place. I'll, I'll roll with that. You know what I didn't get a chance to ask him was when he said, yeah, 
I, it's those moments when the kids scream an alligator and how seeing how the parents react. And then what, when you throw a question at them, then what do they say? And I was like, Oh shoot, how did I react to that? <laughs> uh, you turned out great in the book. So oh, good. yeah, well, that's, <laughs> thanks. I was just wondering if there was more to that. Since getting to know him from that trip, we've been, um, getting some of his, his writing, which is so excellent. You know, it's, it's interesting. It's health, but not, not just sort of your typical kind of health, like do this or whatever. It's like, he gets behind the story and, you know, we've been incorporating that with our tribe, uh, emails and, and things like that. Just sort of like, ex, you know, additional, you know, things of interest, right. It's really cool to kind of see his finished product of the book and, and, and see that a lot of the things that he's saying of all his research and, and work at men's health and all is, you know, being a professor it's the stuff that we keep coming back to, you know, it doesn't have to be that complicated. Get outside, get with some friends or, you know, if it's the, the alone, more his yeah. stuff you read, I mean, he's, he's very condemning of a lot of practices that are yeah. out there from marketing practices to, he's like, oh, you know, the you'll, diet you'll, industry, yeah, the you'll read industry. some study and he's like, yeah, but they never disclose who funded the study. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, there's always... There's yeah, always so- motives. Some of the time they're ulterior motives. And, you know, I mean, what I will tell you is my belief, my, my thought is that he's going, I don't know if it's this book because you can't always control what goes viral, so to say, but he's going to have a long and he's going to have a very storied career as a journalist slash fitness slash, he's just got a lot he's of- just getting started. He's just getting started. And so it's been really fun to get to spend some time with him and, and just, it's, it's one of those people now where it's not like he has a lot of followers on Instagram. It's not like his, his articles are, are great. They're always a part of another organization. And you kind of say, Oh, the author, it, he's less attributable. He's not, he's just not that well known in, in a really mm-hmm. broad sense yet. And so I think this is a great step for him and his sort of idea of, you know, go outside, which he's a big proponent of and, and lives. He's like, you got to try more stuff, you know? And part of that is, yeah, write a book, get it out there. And it's, I mean, it's a what good great book. timing. Like you said, you know, we've had this sort of wake up call for the world. Things are always, it's always difficult to get people to change or, um, to wake up. I mean, ourselves included, but last year was that in a lot of different ways. It's, it's, it shook a lot of things up and I think people are, are going to be looking for. Yeah. So I think, I think, look, if you're out there and you're like me or you're like so many of us, you're like, man, now is, I know for a fact, I'm more receptive to new ideas. I know that I need to go do this thing or that thing to kind of reset. His book is a great, way to help in that journey. There's a lot of license to call bullshit on a lot of stuff that's out there and to make your life simpler and more rewarding. And what more can you ask for than that? Right. Yeah. So we appreciate your listening. This was a, a really fun one for us. Michael's a good friend, smart dude, really enjoy chatting with him on the couch at, at home <laughs> with our kids running around, enjoy him on the podcast and, and hope you all did too. So thanks for your listenership. And if you enjoyed this, tell a friend.